We regret that due to technical difficulties, we lost the first 10 minutes of this service. Does he now send us back to the law? He says, okay, you're a bunch of lawbreakers. I've taken care of your, con- your condemnation. Now go ahead and keep the law. Once he pays this penalty, does he just send us back to the commands which we broke in the first place? Does he forgive your sins and then simply tell you, okay, you're forgiven now. Now go cherish your wife and give sacrificially and pray without ceasing and don't be bitter and, and a thousand other things. Because if this is what God does, if God forgives me and then sends me right back to his commandments, I still have a problem. It's called my flesh. The law is still weakened by my bent towards sin, by my flesh itself. In fact, we need more than forgiveness, friends. We need more than no condemnation. We need freedom from the flesh. In fact, the law when you live in the flesh, actually causes you or stirs up your sin even more. Did you know that? Look back in Romans chapter 7 and verse 5. Paul writes, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the, you see that? Law. We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. See, the law doesn't overcome flesh. It feeds it. The law just gives me more opportunities to rebel against God. The law doesn't make you loving. God tells you, love God. Does that help you? That command? Cherish your wife. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Friends, I need more than that. I need more than orders from God. I need more than His commandments. Because the law is not a remedy to my law-breaking nature. I need help. And the glorious truth is that God knows this. He not only gave you Christ to pay for your law-breaking sins, He gives you His Spirit to empower you for your law-keeping obedience. This is what He says in verse 9. He says, But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. In fact, what we see here in our text are really two kinds of people. Those who live in the power of the flesh, or those who live in the power of the Spirit. And Paul begins to unfold for us this, the Spirit's ministry in our life. In fact, many consider Romans chapter 8 to be one of the greatest uh, chapters describing the Spirit's work for us. In the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, Paul's mentioned the Spirit four times. In Romans chapter 8, we'll see God willing in the coming weeks that he'll go back to the Spirit over and over and over again. In fact, 83 to- uh, 23 times by my count, the Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 8. And so let's be clear here what we're talking about when we say the Spirit of God. We're not talking about a force. We're not simply talking about a power. We're we're simply not talking about some experience. He is not an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of God. He can be resisted, grieved, quenched, obeyed, insulted, outraged. He has wills and plans and desires. He has a personality and he lives within you, Christian. He lives there to fill you and to seal you, to comfort you and to commune with you, to intercede and to illuminate, to gift and to guide, to correct and to convict, to bear fruit in your life, to pour out God's love into your heart and to empower you to resist sin, love Jesus and serve God. And he's come to give you freedom. I want to talk to you about the freedom which you have received by the spirit of God today. In fact, in these verses, I see at least four realities in which the Spirit has freed us. He has given us new desires, number one, 
Number two, he's given us a new position. Number three, he's given us a new ability. And number four, we have a new relationship. And so let's consider what he has done for us. And let's, while we do, praise God for our liberation, for the transformation in which we have experienced. And friends, as we study these things, we're going to talk a lot about what it means to be in the flesh. And I've listened to a number of sermons on this text, and they all seem to have this line of thinking. The people who are in the flesh, they're like this, and it's them over there. And I don't want to think about them over there. I want to think about you and me and what we once were, because we all at one time lived in the flesh. And so when we see God tell us what it was like to be there, what it was like to be locked in that prison, of the sinful inclinations that we once had, let's rejoice that we have been set free by the Spirit of God. God help us. These are breathtaking truths, glorious treasures for you to consider. Perhaps you would do well even to pray silently now. God help me to rejoice in your truth. We see, first of all, the Spirit gives new desires. Number one, the Spirit gives new desires. No, verse 5. The Bible says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. It seems to me that Christians think differently than other people. I don't know if you've realized this or noticed this. Perhaps you encounter this in your place of employment. You have a project before you and perhaps the thought will jump into your mind. I wonder how this will impact my witness for Christ here in the workplace. Or you're disciplining your children and you pray to God, God, I don't want to exasperate my children to rebellion. I want to love them in the midst of this discipline. Or you're watching TV and the thought comes to your mind, does this please God that I'm watching? Should I be finding amusement in what I'm now laughing at? Or you make a purchase and you think, well, this a good use of my money. Am I being a faithful steward of that which God has given me? Or you think about retirement and you think, okay, how can I use this retirement for God's glory? Or you see some clouds billowing or a particularly um, spectacular sunset in the east and you think, this is it, right? He's coming. Right? You thought that, haven't you? You stand on your tiptoes and you look out on those clouds to see if you could see a silhouette of a man riding the clouds. And people walk by and think, you're a weirdo. And you are. That is a little bit strange, isn't it? I mean, the world says, listen, it's your money. Do what you want with it. It's your retirement. You worked hard. Spend it however you like. It's your television. Listen, you worked all day. Sit on the couch and enjoy it. That's what the world says. Christians are weird. They think strangely. In fact, you know what I find particularly strange about us? Is that even when we sin, we think about God. I don't know about you, but but thinking about God while I sin really harms my enjoyment of that sin. Right? I mean, it's strange. Why are we thinking about the, the, the one we're sinning against while we're actually sinning against them? That makes no sense whatsoever. My self pity would be much more gratifying. If I wasn't at the same time thinking that God works all things together for my good. I'll tell you my bitterness or hateful thoughts will be much more enjoyable, much more fun if my mind did not keep reminding me of all that I've been forgiven of. And my boasting would be much more gratifying if I did not have thoughts of what God has done for me and what I was like before he rescued me. And my materialistic fantasies, friends, would be a lot more enjoyable if I wasn't reminded that Jesus himself says, if anyone's to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What's going on up here? What's happening? 
Well, friends, I tell you, you have a new mind. You have new desires. This is what this scripture says. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. We think this way because we have been changed. In fact, that that word live there in verse 5 is is not actually in the text. It's literally for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So the, the things you dream about and the things that occupy your mind and the things you think about and long for and the concerns that are present in your life are determined by your nature, by who you are. Are you according to the flesh or are you according to the spirit? Friends, if you're a Christian, you were once according to the flesh. You used to think about the flesh. Now, to be clear, when we use this word flesh, we're not simply talking about our our body. Though sometimes it's used that way. It's not here in this context. It's talking about our sinful inclinations, a desire to go our own way, to be our own God, to do our own things. It does not simply refer to sexual promiscuity or drunkenness or some other acts of debauchery. It could be anything that the world offers to us that we consider and engage in apart from a reference to God. I'm currently reading uh, Bunyan's, rereading Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. And if you read this, this incredible story, there's a time when Christian, on his way to the celestial city, has to go through Vanity Fair. You remember Vanity Fair? Bunyan puts it this way. At this fair are such merchandises sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts. As harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. I don't know what whatnot is. Maybe it's computers and granite countertops and 401ks and deep fried Twinkies and sporting events. But it's all there. You notice some of it's good. Some of it's what we would call wicked. I mean, there are harlots and wives there. There are lusts and lands there. The reality when we live according to the flesh is not that we're necessarily living wickedly, as the world would say, but we're living without reference to God. We live without any consideration of him. We don't think about him at all. That's what it means to live according to the flesh, to set your minds on the things of the flesh. I think the great biblical example of this is Esau. Remember him? who came in from the open country after a a long day hunting and and evidently didn't catch anything. And he was hungry when he got there. I'm not a hunter, but I love backpacking. I'll tell you one of the greatest things about backpacking is after a week in the backcountry, you come out and that first meal you get to eat is just glorious. So I can kind of relate to Esau. I understand what that hunger is like. And he shows up back home and his little brother there, Jacob's having a a chili cook-off in the tent. And Esau begins to smell the chili... And the, the aroma just fills every, everywhere. And he says, give me some of that stew. Give me some of that chili. And his brother, like little brothers do, say, sell me your birthright. Now, you remember what Jake, uh, Esau's birthright was? This little thing I like to call the promised land. Plus a relationship with God himself. In fact, God visited Esau's grandfather, Abraham, and said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur to give you this land to possess. Esau, Abraham's grandson, don't you think he heard of that inheritance? When he wondered, Dad, why are we wandering in tents far away from our homeland? What are we doing here? Oh, son, God had promised our family, above all families in the world, this will be our land, and he will be our God. This was his birthright. This was his inheritance. Now, I like a bowl of chili. 
I'm a Southwest guy. I, we had the chili cook-off a little while ago. I don't know if you were there. It was good. I tried all nine chilies, right? But I'm a Southwest guy. Chili's supposed to make you sweat. I don't know if you realize this, okay? It's supposed to take some air out of your lungs. So it was all a little bland to me. We'll do better next time. <laughs> I like a bowl of chili. But I'm not about to give up my inheritance for it. Esau, however, in the flesh, says, what good is a birthright to me when I'm dying of hunger? Give me your chili and take my birthright. See, that's what it means to be in the flesh, to set your minds on the things of the flesh, living after your own appetites with no reference to God. This is what we were. We were all Esau. We are all living here, but we have been given a new mind, new desires. We now love what we once hated. We now hate what we once loved. We are now spiritually minded, which means we don't set our minds in the clouds and we're not detached from reality. It actually means we see reality for what it really is. We actually see the hand of God everywhere because the hand of God is everywhere and he has given us a mind to see it and a heart to delight in it. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says, set your minds on things above. That doesn't mean to live detached from reality because he goes on in that same chapter to tell us how we should relate to to sex, to money, to anger, to speech, to truth, how we treat one another, how we should treat our wives and our husbands, how we should treat our children and our parents, how we should be workers and treat our employers. He says, in reference to all these things, as you live out your faith, set your minds on God. Think about God. Consider what God wants. And how he would have you to live. You and I now see through a divine lens, don't we? We see God everywhere. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. By the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, he has renewed my mind. He has for you as well. You've been given a new mind, a new desires. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, says, If you have, you will think about God spontaneously. You'll just think about God all the time. You you won't need calamity or illness or even a sermon to help you to think about God. God will be coming to your mind all the time. I wonder, did you think about God this morning? When you woke up, did you think about God? Or ate breakfast, did you think about God? Felt a little bit rushed, were you thinking about God? I hope you're thinking about God right now. Be doing a poor job if you're not. (laughs) But I wonder if God comes to your mind spontaneously. I wonder if you thought about God this week. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. I think you ought to have great assurance that the Spirit resides in me if you're thinking about God spontaneously. And Owen says, well, think about God not just spontaneously, but abundantly. Well, think about Him all the time. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day. Friends, he didn't walk around with a scroll in his hand, constantly reading the law of God. He walked around with God in his mind. And he was thinking about God throughout the day. That's what it means to have a spiritual mind, to to have these new desires. Those who live in the flesh rarely think about God. They don't consider God in their plans, don't take him into account into their dreams. They don't ever wonder if they're actually pleasing him. But you and I do because we have been freed from the flesh that you might set your mind on God. I think you ought to rejoice, Christian. God has done a good work in you. He has changed your desires. But that's not all he's done. You see, the Spirit, secondly, gives us a new position. 
Number two, the Spirit gives us a new position. We see this in verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This is our position, our status right now. It's not where we'll actually go. It's not what we will become. It says to set the mind on the, on the flesh is death. Not will be death, though it will lead us to death, but it is right now death. The reality is when you were in the flesh, you were spiritually dead, the Bible tells us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We once were all walking around like zombies. We were spiritual zombies. We had no inclination towards life. Our body was alive, but our spirit was dead. We had no um, desire for God. We were unresponsive, and we were cold. In fact, Scripture was foolish to us in the flesh. Because it's the Spirit who provides that light and that understanding and that enjoyment. The Bible says if you're in the flesh, you are in a state of spiritual death. This is beautifully illustrated by Martin Lloyd-Jones when he tells the story of William Wilberforce, that great Christian parliamentarian who led Great Britain in the abolition of slavery. Well, Wilberforce loved the Lord. He was in a position of life, but he had a very good friend named William Pett, who was the prime minister in England, who was a nominal Christian, who was in the state of death. There was during this day a great preacher in London by the name of Richard Cecil. And, and Wilberforce just delighted in Cecil and very much wanted his friend Pitt to come hear him. And he was after Pitt to come and listen. Come listen to this preacher. Come listen to him. And Pitt continued to refuse Wilberforce, continued to put him off until one day Wilberforce just wore him down. And just to get him to stop asking, Pitt said, okay, I'll come hear this man Cecil. And so Wilberforce and Cecil went to church. And I'll tell you, uh, according to Wilberforce, Cecil was at his best. He was provocative and clear and convicting and powerful. And Wilberforce was simply ecstatic. He, could, he thought, if any sermon that Pitt could come and hear, this is the one I want him to hear. And he was very interested to talk to his friend after the church service to see what he thought. Well, Pitt was, clear, uh, was eager to actually give his impression. He said to him, you know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea of what that man was talking about. One heard life. One heard the majestic glories of God. Another heard death. Just noise. He was bored by God. Bored by his majesty. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is what I was. I once was dead. In my trespasses and sin. But now I've been made alive. You see, the spirit, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, he says. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 5, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The spirit now gives us an ability to rejoice in God and his work and his word. And our life indeed is enriched by the spirit himself. Dwight Moody said about his conversion, I was in a new world. The next morning, the sun shone brighter. The birds sang sweeter. The old elms waved their branches for joy and all nature was at peace. Jesus Christ in 
enriches the now of life. He has given us life and ability to delight in him and in his word. He has put life into our hearts through the spirit of God himself. And we not only get life, but we also get peace because he says the spirit is life and peace. Now we saw back in Ephesians, uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible tells, therefore, if you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And we talked about that a number of weeks ago, that we were once at enmity with God, and now we have been made peace with him. But we not only get peace with God, according to Romans 8, 6, we actually get the peace of God. You see the difference. The peace of God is that inner security, that harmony in which God has put into your heart through Christ's spirit himself who now dwells within you. And so when hardship comes upon you and difficulty comes upon you and trouble and trial befalls you, you have a peace that Jesus has given you that is far unlike anything this world has. A peace, the Bible says, that surpasses all understanding. In fact, the scripture tells us in the book of Philippians that in everything, we should present our request to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds. It will guard us from this faithless anxiety. Guard us from this worry that confesses maybe God is against us. We have this peace in the midst of these troubles. You ought to rejoice, I think. He's freed you from a position of death, and he has brought you into a place of life and peace. But that's not all he's done for you. Number three, we see that the Spirit gives us a new ability. No, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We were once hostile to God. Our great need for the Spirit is found in that without Him, the carnally minded, the fleshly minded are against God. This is why we're dead, because we made God our enemies. And to set our mind on the flesh, therefore, is not a state of spiritual neutrality. We're not spiritually Switzerland if we have our mind in the flesh. We're against God, the Bible tells us. Sometimes this hostility is not like a in-your-face, I hate you, God. Sometimes it's just this, this hostile indifference. Living life without any regard to God whatsoever. Charles Spurgeon illustrated this when he imagined that someone wrote you a letter, but you paid no attention to that letter. He imagines this hypothetical conversation. says, when did it come? Last Monday. Have you read it? Oh, no, I don't bother to read his letters. You have a good many of them, then. Oh, yes, hundreds. Well, what have you done with them? I haven't done anything with them. I leave them alone and don't bother to read them. When you did read one of his letters, what was it about? Well, it was about wishing me to be at peace with him, about desiring to do me good. He spoke of my being in great danger and said that he would help me in my being poor and offered to make me rich. He talked like that, and you've never read any of his letters? You must hate this person very much. And I think that captures this hostility, that indifference towards God brings about, reflects in our life. When we are in the flesh, we're indifferent to God. And sometimes that that hostility bears itself out in an unwilling to obey his laws. You see that here in verse 7. 
that he says to set the mind, uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. There's an unwillingness to submit. The one who's in the flesh just wants independence. I want to be my own God. I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. And I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker for those who favor abortion rights. That says, keep your laws off my body. And I think this captures this sentiment of being in the flesh brings about that I don't want anyone's laws telling me what to do. I want to be independent of anyone. I don't want your God telling me how I'm to live and what I should do with my life. In fact, what people often do is they create a God in their own image. Rather than submitting to God's law, they create a God who will submit to their law. They create a God like them who only loves and winks at sin and does not make hell and certainly wants you to be happy and hates the people you hate and loves the people that you love and never requires anything hard of you. This is the God that people make when they do not want to submit to God's law. They don't submit to him. In fact, if you read the end of verse 7, we see the inability even in, in greater terms. Indeed, it cannot. This is the language of inability. Those who are in the flesh can not obey God's law. Sometimes this, this idea is captured with a term total depravity. Over the centuries, that's the term that's been used. More recently, people call it total inability. It's the idea that not that people are as bad as they can be. It's not the idea that there's no good in people, but they have no ability to obey him. They live only for their own pleasure. They act according to their nature. You see, a dog is free to act like a dog. But it cannot act like a person. Right? A dog is not a person. A cat, by the way, is not a person either. It acts like its nature determines. Well, those who are in the flesh can only act within the flesh. They cannot act as the Holy Spirit would like because they don't possess him. In fact, you notice in verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, this idea of inability. They live only to please themselves. This is what we once were. But we've been changed. We've been transformed. God has given us his spirit, and he has, he has transformed our lives. He has given us these new abilities to obey God and to follow him and to even bring God pleasure. Think about that. You can please God himself through the power of the spirit. He has transformed you. In fact, I like what Piper talks, when he talks about this transformation, he says that becoming a Christian is not like uh, going from a Republican to a Democrat or a Democrat to Republican, whatever one you choose. But it's more like going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's a radical transformation. Now, the analogy is not perfect, but I like it because I could command a butterfly to fly. Right? You walk up to a butterfly and say, fly, little butterfly. And does that butterfly rebel and say, no, I'm not flying? Does that butterfly say, I'm afraid to fly? What if I get up too high? Does that butterfly get filled with guilt even at the idea of a command coming upon it? No, it acts according to its nature. It flies because this is what God has designed it to do. And every time it flaps its wings, it glorifies its maker by doing what God had created it to do, to live as a flyer, not as a caterpillar. But if you walked up to a caterpillar and you said to that caterpillar, fly, and you gave it that command, it cannot. It will not submit to that command because it simply cannot. Now, the caterpillar may be filled with despair and think, oh, what's wrong with me? I can't fly. There's no hope for me. Or it may be filled with self-deceit and say, I am flying. Look how far the ground is down there. (laughs) 
Or the caterpillar say, I cannot fly. I cannot do what you command. Please change me. Make me into a butterfly. Christian, you once were a caterpillar. An ugly, hairy worm. Unable, unwilling to do what God wanted you to do. And he has transformed you by the Spirit of God. He has made you into a butterfly. Jesus calls it being born again. There was a day in which you heard the gospel that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he died in your place and that he rose from the grave. And as you heard it, you became alive. Spirit came, descended and filled your heart and gave you faith to believe and a new ability to please God. He writes God's laws on our hearts. You see, he doesn't stand outside barking orders at us. He actually changes us from the inside. So God's laws now become our pleasure. It brings us delight to actually follow after him, to do what he calls for us to do. Again, Piper says, when the commands of, uh, when this happens, the commands of God are a beckoning of a beautiful spring day and aroma-filled garden. By the grace of God, we have been transformed into butterflies. The life of God has come to dwell in our soul and is now our nature to be up and flying for its Savior. He's changed us. We now have new abilities to please God, to obey God, to submit to God's law. I wonder if these truths sound foreign to you. I wonder if they sound a little bit strange. You see, some people think that being a Christian means to be religious. And certainly there's some aspect of that, but the Pharisees were religious and they killed Jesus. Other people think to be a Christian means to ascribe to a set of theology. Well, that's true, but there's more than that. Some people say to be a Christian is to be baptized or to walk an aisle or to raise a head or sign a card or to join a church. And all of that may be true, but there's more than that. We need to be transformed. We need to be born again. We need to be changed. And I wonder if even considering these realities, you're sitting here thinking, this has not happened to me. I don't know what he's talking about. I haven't been changed. I haven't been transformed. Friends, you could cry out to God even now. Have mercy on me. I want to obey you. I want to follow you. I need your help. Send your spirit into my life. Make me new again. Cause me to be born again that I may follow you. If you call out to him, he will answer that call. He will do this good work in your life. Well, it's not all the spirit does. We lastly consider and quickly that the spirit gives us a new relationship. Notice verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not belong to, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Bible says that you are not, you see it here, in the flesh. Christian, are you in the flesh? Your answer is no. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That is, you are in the Spirit, under His influence. He is the determinative power in your life. Is He your only influence? I'm afraid not. He has His enemies. 
who will come and tempt us. We still sin, but to be in the flesh was to be in bondage to it with an inability to submit to God, to please God, but we are no longer in the flesh for the Spirit of God breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. In fact, not only are you in the Spirit, but if you read on in verse 9, he says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, He is in you today. The Spirit of God lives within you. In fact, that word dwell, I think, is very important. It means, it comes from the word house. It means He has made you His dwelling. You are not a motel to the Spirit of God. You are not, He is not visiting you for a week. He, you are not even a rental. You are His home. You are His address. You are His permanent dwelling. You are His temple. And he has done this good work. There is a person who is living within you today, Christian, that was not there before. And if God had given you eyes to see, I reckon you would have looked up into the sky and saw the Spirit himself descend upon you and to fill you with his presence. You have gone from enmity to inhabitation, from hostility to home, from resistant to residence, from transgressor to temple, from disobedient to dwelling, from loathing to loving, from hating God to have Him live within us. Who am I that the Spirit of God would live in me? Who are you that the Spirit of God would dwell in you forever? Yet He has. He has come to live within you. And shall never leave you, never forsake you. In fact, you notice if we read on in verse 9, we don't have time to flesh it out. Perhaps we'll visit next week. You see, it calls him the Spirit of Christ. It's Christ's Spirit who's in you. He is with you. I think you would do well to ponder this truth, to rejoice in it. You are never without Jesus. He is never far from you. He is never distant from you. In fact, he's not even with you. He is in you. Jesus once said, as he called us to go out to this world to share his good news, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He told us that he will be with us even to the very end of the age. And now we know what he means. Now we know how close he means to be. He means to be in us. I don't, friends, I don't know what's going on in your life today. I don't know what what baggage you bring in, what trouble you find yourself in, but let me tell you, if you're a Christian, even if you feel alone and neglected by God, he has not left you. He is with you. Christ died so that the Spirit may come and dwell in you. The very life of God has freed you from your bondage to sin and flesh. Can you therefore not sing, Long my imprisoned spirit lay? Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thy eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we once were hostile to you. 
We once were rebels in our flesh and our sin, unwilling to obey you, follow you, love you, cherish you, delight in you, unconcerned about your will for our lives and your will for this world. And you have freed us. You have transformed us by the Spirit who now lives within us. I pray that we would not grieve him. I pray that we would not quench him. I pray that we would not resist him. For when we resist him, we shame the blood of Christ, which has been shed so that the Spirit may come in us. Remind us that he loves us. Remind us when he's guiding us through temptation, prodding us to resist that he's doing because he loves us. Remind us that we're in the midst of turmoil and hardship and he communicates to us God's presence that he loves us. Remind us that you have done all this for us. We deserve none of it. We are amazed that you would even be mindful of us, let alone let the Spirit come and live within us. Help us to rejoice in these truths. Help it to carry us through this week and forevermore, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.